This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the May 25th, 1942 broadcast of NBC's News of the World. It includes updates on the war in Europe and Asia from Australia, London, Stockholm, New York, San Francisco, and Washington. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. So thanks for listening. Enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good morning, everyone. Here is the latest news of the world reported by staff members from overseas. First, from San Francisco, we take you to Australia. Well, you'll have to, old boy. Hello. Hello, Australia. San Francisco calling Australia. This is San Francisco calling Australia. While we're endeavoring to establish contact with our reporter in Australia, news from our San Francisco newsroom. The Russians regained the offensive today on the all-important Kharkov front as the battle-stained soldiers of fast-thinking Marshal Simeon Tamashenko launched new offensives on several sectors. That was the leading development in the many war theaters where the United Nations are locked in battle with the aggressor powers of the Axis. Fighting was reported by the Russians to be particularly heavy in the sector to the southeast, where earlier the Nazis had forced the Red Troops onto the offensive. The Soviet noon communique acknowledged the Germans had successfully driven a wedge into... All right, standing by. ...into red lines on one sector... We're told to stand by from Australia, San Francisco, calling Australia. Come in, Australia. This is Martin Agronsky, somewhere in Australia. Yesterday, our Air Force cracked the Jap Aerodrome at Rabaul in New Britain in one of the heaviest and most successful raids we have yet launched in the Northeast sector. Again, it was the speedy, hard-hitting, medium bombers who added to their list of victories by diving through an extremely heavy curtain of anti-aircraft fire to smack a large concentration of heavy Jap bombers on the ground. According to the communique, 20 of our bombs hit in the middle of a group of 20 Jap bombers, making two direct hits on the parked Jap planes and setting many others on fire. I regret to report that one of our planes was hit coming through the Jap barrage 
and were last and when last seen was losing height rapidly. It's hoped that the crew managed to escape by parachute. There is nothing to report from other sectors of the Southwest Pacific, but as the Jap naval and air position is such that the enemy might launch a large-scale offensive, we still consider his comparative inactivity as a purely transitory phase. Since you're apparently having quite a headache at home over the rationing of gasoline, you might find the Australian solution to the gas shortage helpful. Over here, the accepted gasoline substitute is a contraption called a charcoal gas producer. It is quite practical for driving short distances and for city traffic. The machine is fairly simple to operate and easy to manufacture. Fundamentally, it's just the old heating stove using charcoal as fuel and attached to the back or side of a car, while so connected to the engine that the gas fumes it develops take the place of the ordinary gas fumes produced by gasoline. You light the burner from beneath like you would an ordinary furnace, and the gas from the burning of the charcoal inside is fed through a filter. The average burner, which will, will hold a 50-pound bag of charcoal, which will take on the average of 65 miles, or will bring you about one and one-third miles per pound. In Australia, it costs about 80 cents per 50-pound bag. That means you travel at a cost of about one and one-sixth cents per mile. The gas producer unit itself costs about $200 on the average. The only trouble with a burner is that your car hasn't much pickup and won't make more than about 50 miles per hour. Also, it means that you'd have to devote most of your Sunday mornings to cleaning out the burner, shaking out the clinkers and ashes, just like you have to do with your own furnace. But the important thing is that your car runs if you're really interested in transportation. The favorite American headquarters joke here concerns an exhibition fight between an Australian and an American soldier. The American called himself the fighting fool from Omaha and wore trunks designed from the stars and stripes. The Australian, despite the American's fancy pants and terrible title, made a fool of our doughboy. That was Martin Agronsky reporting from somewhere in Australia. And now, for further news of the world, we take you to New York. And now to London for the report of John McVeigh. This is London. Squadrons of RAF planes were seen crossing the English Channel coast this morning and heading in the direction of Boulogne. Military quarters in London today believe the main fighting on the Russian front has shifted from the Kharkov area to the Izum region, where the Russians are said to be on the defensive. As seen from here, the situation seems confused. Political observers in Britain are watching closely developments at the Labour Party's four-day annual conference this week. Labour has got some vital problems to consider, and the attitude the conference takes on them may have far-reaching effects on the conduct of the war and the direction the post-war world will take. Britain and the world are in a state of flux, and the average Britisher hopes for bold leadership that will at the same time mobilise the nation on as near 100% basis as can be achieved and chart a clear path through the complexities of British and European reconstruction. This week's conference should give some indication as to whether organized labor in Britain can produce the men and ideas to fulfill that hope. In the past, some critics have maintained that labor leaders were content to leave Britain's political leadership to the conservatives, as long as the conservatives respected trade union rights. 
These critics have claimed that if labor had taken a stronger political line years ago, Hitler might never have been able to start Europe on the downhill slide to war. One internal matter that should arouse great interest will be the labor conference's decision on whether or not to keep the political truce that was begun when the present national government came to power. Some influential labor leaders feel that labor's demands for the mobilization of property on an equal basis for the mobilization of manpower have been disregarded by the national government. Today's Daily Herald, the trade union organ, declares that the government's power over property is being too timidly exercised, and in consequence, the war effort is injured. Some labor circles are ready to demand that unless the national government uses its power to mobilize property, the truce should be ended and each election made an open fight. National control of the coal industry by a board composed of government representatives, coal owners, and miners is another likely demand. Coal owners and backbench conservatives have been holding out against any form of national control. About the only suggestion from the conservative wing on coping with a shortage of fuel has been the idea of voluntary rationing. And voluntary rationing hasn't worked on anything so far in this war. The labor executives attempt to blueprint the future and establish war aims will come up for approval. The report outlines labor's ideas of a planned society with state ownership and control of basic industries and services. In the field of international affairs, British labor is asking that Britain's relations with Russia be placed on as close and firm a basis as her relations with America. This is one of the themes of the opening address this morning by the chairman of the conference, Mr. Walter Green, a member of Parliament. Mr. Green called for more punch and less preaching, more tanks and less talk. This is John McBain in London, returning you to New York. We recross the Atlantic, this time to the Swedish capital. David Anderson reports direct from Stockholm. Hello, New York. This is David Anderson speaking from Stockholm. It has been some time now since I've spoken of the Finnish front, and the reasons for this are natural. The Finnish front as such will not be decisive for the turn of events on the Eastern Front, and then, too, when the Finns were reporting the progress of the so-called sphere offensive, their accounts of it were so exaggerated as to make them unreliable for retransmission. In another month, though, it will have been one year since Finland entered her second war in succession with Russia. In that period, she got back practically everything which she owned in 1939, with the addition of certain sections of definitely Russian territory in the Karelian, Eastern Karelia. But this has cost her a price. According to the best reliable figures available here, it has met the loss of between 60 to 65,000 Finnish lives and an economic loss which cannot be measured in figures. What are the results? On the home front, near starvation has been the order of the day. Through the grace of Sweden, nearly 20,000 Finnish children have been evacuated to this country, and food has been brought into Finland from Denmark through the Swedish-Finnish clearing exchange. But even this aid cannot and does not cover all of Finland's needs. The Finnish press has continued to demand more, even if this demand may be clouded in such phrases as, quote, it is natural that Sweden herself determined to what extent she shows her sympathy with us, unquote. The enthusiasm with the Finns seemed to show when the war began has now subsided considerably. Any grandiose Finnish nation which Marshal Mannerheim might have depicted to the home front no longer seems to carry its appeal. And yet any Finnish hopes for a quick end to the war seem to be in vain. According to what I learned from reliable sources, the Germans have already let the Finns know that they must be prepared for another winter war. And almost simultaneously, such men as Tanner, the present Minister of Finance, expressed the hope that the war will be over this year. As Minister for Trade up to a short while ago, he realizes only too well the limited economic resources which are at Finland's disposal. According to the best reliable sources, the Finns have about five months left. After that, it is strongly felt that the Finns will have to throw out the white flag. As to this, we'll have to watch developments. 
This is David Anderson returning you now to New York. And now developments at home are reported by Earl Godwin from the newsroom in Washington. <coughs> Good morning, folks. Taking up where Martin Nagronsky left off with his old Coke burner, what was it? Charcoal burner. You probably have heard many times or several times that scientists are endeavoring to make a gasoline or a gasoline substitute out of coal, and the Bureau of Mines has really asked Congress for experimental funds. Dr. R.R. R. Sayers, who is the director of the Bureau of Mines, suggests that the production of gasoline from coal may be helped along, may help along the fueling of airplanes far away places such as Alaska, and he proposes building, starting an experimental plant in Pittsburgh that can turn out 100 pounds of gasoline a day, and maybe we really will be running that way. Are you apprehensive about the drafting of boys, 18 and 19? That seems to be a strong probability. Congress will have to make the enactment, of course. There are 1,200,000 boys in each class, and while you are expressing your opinion, here are two veterans of age 20 who to top today's war news of their adventure, hanging head downward somewhere over the Australian sector, flying at bomber speed, repairing an open bomb dropper door, which had jammed and had to be fixed. They had finished off a Jap plane which had dropped blazing bullets on them out of the skies. And then as a matter of routine, the two boys, Sergeant Engelman of Indiana, Corporal Norton of St. Louis, went over the side of the whizzing plane half a mile in the air, and having repaired the damage, were hauled back by their comrades. No parachutes had their rope broken in the strain of that terrific speed. Death, of course. But they lived and have contributed their selfless bit to the cause of freedom. In, this, in Washington this morning, its air superiority by 1943, optimistically referred to as the reason why we should expect victory in 1944. And the, that is Senator Connolly of Texas chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, sets the date at 1943. But others say that the date of 1943 is dangerous to count on. Other more conservative gentlemen in the know believe we will have air superiority by 1943, and from then on we could conservatively count on victory if we have the other elements favoring victory. Air superiority is not alone sufficient. We must have ground strength and naval strength to follow up Speaking of air superiority, it was Doolittle's feat of bombing Tokyo that has changed the Japanese strategy. They are so sure the Doolittle raid came from Chinese bases, they're jabbing deep into the heart of China to push the Chinese back so that no further bombings can take off from Chinese bases. That's their plan anyhow. Doolittle said yesterday, though, we'll be bombing the Jap islands again and again and again. I've been hopefully, hopefully predicting Congress will enact the bill aiding smaller industries, but always and always there's been a delay. I predict again that this week we'll see the passage of that helpful legislation and the presidential sign signature will follow within a few days after the final vote. That law from Santa Murray and Representative Patman, R Wright Patman of Texas, sponsoring, provides a business-getting agency and a method of government financing. Question to be answered, will the war needs and WPB permit some of the small industrial manufacturing of civilian needs? And that's all from Washington at this time. These have been the reports of Martin Agronsky from Australia, John McVeigh from London, David Anderson from Stockholm, and Earl Godwin from our own nation's capital. For the latest news, keep tuned to this station. This is the National Broadcasting Company.